I often said that uh, being a pastor doesn't do anything for you as far as advancing your sanctification. Uh, and uh, and I, I, I was wrong. Uh, and I found out how on Friday night, how being a pastor sanctifies you uh, that in ways that wouldn't have otherwise. Um, on Friday night, I was at my daughter's soccer game, and I would have yelled at the referee a whole lot more if I didn't know that I had to preach on Sunday. So that is the one way I have found that being a pastor has increased my sanctification uh, in not yelling at referees late in the week. Now, on Tuesday, I would have let them have it. But on Friday, I have to save my voice. So uh, who knew, right? So that's changed my, my perspective on ministry. Uh, glad that you're here this morning. We're going to continue our study through 1 Peter. Here is an important uh, interpretive or, or maybe just uh, enlightening fact about Bible interpretation. Uh, 1 Peter was written by Peter. Aren't you glad you came here this morning? It is important to remember that when studying this letter. Uh, and we're going to start out today by looking at an episode from the life of Peter before he penned this letter. Peter has had a whirlwind of an evening. He, with his fellow disciples, have survived the week in Jerusalem. They weren't sure before they came to Jerusalem if they were actually going to get out of there alive. As they entered the city, Jesus presents himself as the king of Israel and were actually greeted with enthusiasm. That day ends and the week begins. Much of the time they spent in the temple. The religious leaders were asking questions, trying to find some legitimate cause to kill Jesus. Jesus kept winning those discussions, but he had not yet become king. The evening before, Jesus ate Passover with his disciples. There were some interesting discussions around the table. Jesus said some interesting, odd, provocative statements. Stuff that would make you think and wonder what he was saying. Judas left in a hurry. Uh, during the evening, presumably to give charity to the needy. After the meal, Jesus goes to a garden to pray, and he seems worked up. Suddenly, Judas comes with a group of temple guards to arrest Jesus. Peter had the lone sword among the group of disciples, and he swings that sword like a fisherman, cutting off the soldier's ear. When I was little, I used to think that meant that he had great aim. It wasn't until I was older that I realized he was trying to cut off the guy's head and he, and he got an ear instead. Peter had stated earlier that even if the rest of the group of disciples were to run away, that he would stay by Jesus' side till the bitter end. Peter thought he was more committed, more courageous, more loyal than the others. Once Jesus was arrested, the rest of the disciples fled, except John. Peter hadn't run off like the others, but he didn't exactly measure up to his stated ambition concerning standing with Christ no matter what. Peter was around, trying to blend in with the crowd, staying nearby, trying to discreetly follow Jesus while Jesus was being prosecuted by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious leaders. 
And we pick up that account in Matthew chapter 26, verses 69 through 75. It says, Meanwhile, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. A servant girl came over and said to him, You were one of those with Jesus the Galilean. But Peter denied it in front of everyone. I, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Later, out by the gate, another servant girl noticed him and said to those standing around, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Again, Peter denied it, this time with an oath. I don't even know the man. A little later, some of the other bystanders came over to Peter and said, You must be one of them. We can tell by your Galilean accent. And Peter swore, <coughs> A curse on me if I'm lying. I don't know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. Suddenly, Jesus' words flashed before the, through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows, you will deny three times that you even know me. And he went away, weeping bitterly. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, help us to understand the significance of, uh, of the teaching that Peter gives in his, in his uh, letter, uh, and, um, and that we'll see uh, the, the reality of this teaching in Peter's life and that we'll apply it to our own life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in conflict with our culture, but no going over that, and we have Peter's example. Peter's example. Basically, Peter failed. There's really no other way to, to come to any other conclusion than that. Peter failed. Let's highlight Peter's actions in this, in this account. First of all, Here's his example. He is afraid of a young girl. When she first says to him, the first servant girl says, aren't you? I don't know what you're talking about. What was his motivation in saying what he said? It was one of fear. And it seems from this account that it wasn't something that was necessarily said out loud to a large group, but more, uh, more intimately uh, this is said later on. It's it's the whole it's the whole group in the courtyard, uh, but here it seems like it's a smaller group, and Peter is afraid of a young girl. Uh, he's warming himself by the fire in the courtyard of the high priest's home where Jesus was being held. Girl says, "You're one of him, one of Jesus' followers, right?" And he denies. Peter denies knowing Christ because Peter was afraid. In this encounter. Peter did not honor Christ as Lord. When asked again if he was a follower of Jesus, Peter does not say, of course I am. He doesn't say that. Hey, aren't you a follower of Christ? Absolutely I am. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Why wouldn't I be his follower? By the way, that, that was a thing that Peter had said earlier when Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Peter, without hesitation, said, you are the Christ. Right? Didn't Peter do that? Didn't that? Isn't that Peter's confession? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And yet in this situation, he says, I do not know who he is. Does not, does not uh, recognize Christ as Lord. He didn't do that this time. He didn't make that confession this time. Peter denied Christ. In the first instance of Peter's denial, he said, I don't know what you're talking about. He tried feigning ignorance. The second denial came with an oath. I don't even know the man. 
Where the first denial was offhand, this denial was direct. Very direct. There's no other, you, you can't take what Peter says and, and massage it and make it anything other than exactly what he said. A complete denial of Christ. And then, Peter's example is he, he swears a, he, a curse upon himself, on, upon himself and an aggressive towards at his accusers. So his, his, his curses say, I will be cursed. Uh, and it was an oath that he swore. Um, by the way, who did he swear that oath to? It wasn't on his mother's grave, right? He swore an oath to God that he doesn't know this is God. That's not going to go well. You have to be really careful when you do something that foolish. And then, but he's very aggressive towards his accusers. He denies any connection to Jesus, even tempting fate by swearing a curse upon himself if he knew who Jesus was. He was hostile to them, to the crowd, and he lied to them. He lied. And then at the end of this, when he hears the, the rooster crow and he, he remembers that Jesus said, uh, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before you hear a, a rooster crow, uh, Peter hears it, he remembers those words, and he has a tormented conscience. A tormented conscience. After his thorough denial of Christ, he remembers that Jesus said Peter would fall in this way. Peter remembered his confident response to Jesus that he would never deny Christ. And he flees the compound, weeping bitterly. Peter failed. And now we come back to 1 Peter and his letter to the, uh, the churches in northern uh, Turkey. Um, and it says in 1 Peter 13 through 17, we'll, we'll go through this section. Peter wrote, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Missed that last part. Sorry about that. Sometimes I get so busy preaching, I forget what I'm doing. Last week, we studied the obligations of community. Peter quotes from King David in the psalm saying, If you want to have a good long life, control your tongue, flee evil, and pursue peace. If you do these things, the Lord will bless you. Because God is for people who pursue righteous actions. God is against evil people. So this section starts out with a question. If you treat people fairly and desire to live peaceably with them and God is for you, who is going to come at you and cause your harm, right? It says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But it does happen. At the time of this writing, the church is about to undergo major 
persecution. Nero was emperor, and he was about to go after the church. There was a fire in Rome a few years after this letter is written that many thought to have been ordered by Nero himself so that he could rebuild the city to his liking. But he put the blame on Christians. That Christian and Jewish sections of the city were not as damaged as the rest. So he said, obviously, it was the, these, new, these newfangled Christians are the ones who caused the fire. But most believe it was probably Nero so that he could rebuild the city how he wanted. Uh, there is an account by a, a historian named Tacitus, uh, and he lived in the late first century, early second century, so very close uh, to, to the time uh, when, uh, when the city, when, when Rome was on fire and, and the persecution began with Christians. He's, he's not a long ways away, uh, time-wise. He's, he's really close to that time. Um, which, which suggests that his recollections are more accurate. The further we get away from history, the easier it is to reinterpret it to our liking, uh, as, we, as we see often today. Um, but, um, but this guy was, was pretty close uh, to the time of the events. And here's what he wrote. But all human efforts, all the lavish gifts of the emperor, and the propitiations of the gods did not banish the sinister belief that the con conflagration was the result of an order. Consequently, to get rid of this report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name... Pages are sticking together, folks. Here we go. Through the name had its origin suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procreators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition thus checked for the moment <coughs> again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. Accordingly, an arrest was made of all who pleaded guilty of being Christians. Then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city as of hatred of mankind. That was the accusation made against the Christians, is that they hated mankind. And then he puts in parentheses why it was said that Christians hated mankind. Here's why it was said Christians hated mankind. Because they abstained from most social activities since these were so connected to pagan worship. What was the hatred of mankind? They didn't worship idols. They didn't bow down to, to, to the emperor. They didn't, they didn't worship the Roman gods. And that is how they hated mankind. You might have thought that following Christ was about love, and the world says, no, it's not about love. It's about your hatred. Hollis, we talked about that this morning, didn't we? It's not that you love Christ. It's that you hate us, and you hate our culture, and you hate you hate what we do. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt, to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. It was not, as it seemed, for the public good, but to glut one man's cruelty that they were being destroyed. I read a separate account 
that Nero liked to have banquet in the evening, uh, at night outside, and he would use Christians as the flames to, to light his banquet. Major persecution was coming. Peter informs the churches that even if persecution does come, they will still experience the blessings of God. Because of the certainty of God's blessing, persecuted believers should, as Peter wrote, have no fear. Remember from last week, God's blessings are by far greater than the world's cursings. Nero cursed Christians. He murdered them. He lit them on fire and used them as kindling for evening banquets. He lied about them to encourage the disdain of the common citizen toward their Christian neighbors. He took their life. But through Christ, God gives eternal life. What was the worst thing Nero could do to a believer in Christ? The worst thing that Nero could do was send them to, be to go to heaven with their Savior. God's blessings are greater than the world's cursings. And when we, re when we remember that, the instruction, have no fear, makes sense. What else did Peter encourage his readers to do in his instruction? In verse 15, honor Christ as Lord. The opposite of fear and trembling is honor Christ as Lord. Honoring Christ as Lord is the antidote of fear. Fear poisons. Honoring Christ combats our fear of this world and the fear of being persecuted. But what does honor Christ as Lord mean? It means make Christ separate from all others in your mind, in your thinking. Don't think anything or any entity in the same way you think of Christ. In everything, Christ is supreme and without equal. In power, Christ supreme. In knowledge, Christ supreme. In holiness, Christ supreme. Christ is of a different substance where comparisons don't just fall short, but they don't make any sense. To be put side by side. It means to recognize the lordship of Christ, which means Christ is in charge. Peter answered the Lord in a way that all of us have probably answered the Lord at some point uh, in another episode uh, after Christ ascends. When Peter was in a seaside town called Joppa, he received a vision with all sorts of critters that were unclean by Jewish standards. God told Peter, every hunter's favorite verse, Acts 10.13, if you are a hunter, this, should, this is probably your life verse. Acts 10.13 says, and there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And all of God's hunters said, amen. Peter's response was to say the most illogical thing ever uttered by mankind. His response to this was two words and these two words do not make sense put together. When told to arise, kill, and eat these unclean animals, Peter said, No, Lord. No, Lord. These two words should never occur together. 
They don't fit. If Christ is Lord, you can't tell him no. If you tell someone no, they can't be Lord. Right? By definition. When given a command by Christ, the only logical answer is yes. Kids telling their parents no. I don't get that. I don't understand it. Who's in charge of the house? Well, we know that first it's the dog, right? Uh, and then the kids, and then lastly the parents. In all seriousness, as kids get older, there's a respectful way for teens to question parents' commands. All right? uh, there's uh, an opportunity for discussion. After all, parents, when, when teens, you give, a, you give an answer that they don't like, and they say, why? Answer the question. You get to teach them how to think. And they desperately need to learn how to think. I know I did when I was a teen. Uh, so, so don't take a, a front to that. Um, but after the discussion, if the command holds, that settles it. Parents, how many times do you disagree with authorities and submit to their decrees? All the time, right? It is a skill your teen needs to learn because that's life. Listen to their objections, give consideration to their points, change our mind when they are correct, or give information you are unaware of, but honor God in the authority he has lent you as parents. Dad and mom, by teaching your kids to mind your authority, you are teaching them to mind God's authority. With one major difference, God is never wrong, and we sometimes are. But no Lord can never be uttered. Can never be uttered. Knowing Christ is Lord, reckon Christ as Lord, means putting knowledge into practice. Putting knowledge into practice. Honor Christ as Lord is the instruction that, that Peter gives. And then he says, make a defense with gentleness and respect. Make a defense it was only a few weeks ago we had a whole series in Sunday school on apologetics. Apologetics is not saying you're sorry. That's not what apologetics is. Apologetics is making a defense for the hope that is in you. The result of honoring Christ as Lord is being ready to make a defense for the hope that, is, that you possess. Remember at the beginning of this letter where Peter stressed to his readers that they needed to know their salvation in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Knowing that the fullness of our salvation is waiting for us because Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead gives us a living hope. That living hope becomes evident to our culture when? When bad things happen. If this life is all there is, when persecution happens, it will ruin your day. But if our inheritance is secure for all eternity... Persecution illumines our certain hope. We rejoice when we should be sad. And it's the dark background of trials 
of difficulty that makes it known our living hope. Uh, during our COVID break, uh, when we weren't allowed to go do anything, uh, I watched uh, a lot of YouTube. And I reconnected with one of my favorites, Bob Ross. How many of you remember Bob Ross? Let me describe him. He had the best afro I had ever seen in my life, and he kept chipmunks in his pocket. Is this, do you remember Bob Ross? He was the painter on PBS. And, uh, and I have a great appreciation for art because I have zero ability for art. But in watching that, I learned a few things. Unfortunately, how to paint wasn't one of them. Uh, but if you're going to have something sparkle in front, what, is, what has to go behind it? Dark. It has to be dark to make the light come out even more. That's true in our life as well. People will ask about the hope that is, that is within us, that living hope, when it is backdropped by trials and difficulties. We rejoice when we should be sad. That makes our living hope come alive. We bless when we should revile. We act righteously and justly to people who cheat and lie. We stand out. Our hope stands out. It shines. When our hope is demonstrated against a dark background, people will ask about it. The way we honor Christ as Lord is by being ready to make a defense for the hope that is within us. Now there is some objections to being prepared to make that hope. There's some objections to that. The first objection is, what if they won't like me after that? What if I make a defense for, and I give an answer for the reason for the hope that is in me, and the person that I share that with, they, they don't like me after that? That might happen. But God still loves you. What if they think I am weird? You are. You are. It says that Christians, we are aliens and strangers. We are, by definition, weird. We are weird according to the world's standards. But have you seen the world's standards? Do you really want to be normal? Following Christ is a narrow path that most won't take. And so we will be weird. And here's an objection that I think a lot of us share. What if I can't answer their questions? What if I share of the, of the living hope that is within me and they ask a question and I can't give a good answer? Well, then I guess they're just going to have to go to hell, aren't they? And it will be your fault. Not at all. I, if, I know that's what we think sometimes. But we know that's not, it's not our job to save, is it? It's not our job to save. God does that. God is the one who saves. That's his job, not ours. Let's look back at 1 Peter 3.15. Uh, it says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, 
always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. What is the requirement in 3.15? What's the requirement that, that Peter lays out? It's to always be ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. The requirement is not know all the answers. Nor is the requirement be convincing. Our job is to say why we have hope when trouble strikes. When we have the joy of the Lord when the world thinks we should only be sad. To have the peace that passes all understanding when the world thinks we should be afraid and upset. The reason for our hope is Jesus died for our sins and rose from the grave. We have a certain hope for our own resurrection because we have trusted in his saving work when he died in our place, paying the cost for our sin. That is why we have hope. The instruction for how we share that hope is simple. We are to share the reason for our hope with gentleness and respect. There was a church in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and they go downtown every once a week, and they yell at people, and they call it witnessing. The gospel itself is confrontational. It doesn't need our help in that regard, correct? If you are by nature a non-confrontational person, a great way to give an answer gently and respectfully, respectfully for the hope that is in you is to ask questions of the individual. People like to be asked what they think. Answers that deny the authority of Christ are always problematic and inconsistent. So probing questions work well. But to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is in you. I didn't come up with this quote. I think it was John Maxwell, the Christian author about leadership and, and teamwork. And, and the, the quote he had in one of his books was, When opportunity knocks, it's too late to prepare. And I thought, that's very applicable, isn't it? If you are going to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is in you, you won't come up with it when someone says, I don't, I don't get, how are, you, how are you able to be so happy when this happened? Have an answer ready, right? Have an answer ready. Be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in you. And it's as simple as, yeah, this world is tough, but Christ died for my sins and I have, I have the, the certain hope of spending eternity with Christ because he paid for my sins. That's it. That's giving an answer. That's giving a reason for the hope that is in you. You didn't have to memorize thick theological books. You just give an answer for the hope that is in you. Sharing your faith is an awesome experience. It is an awesome experience. I know... <coughs> It can seem frightening if you're not used to doing it. Uh, but I, my kids want to go skydiving, and I think a working plane is a bad thing to jump out of. Uh, that's, that's my personal opinion. But they think it would be great. But here's what I've heard about skydiving. I've heard the more you do it, the less afraid you become of it. But what doesn't decrease is the enthusiasm of doing it, the, the, the fun of it, the excitement of doing it. The fear goes down, but the excitement stays the same every time. That's sharing our faith. 
That's sharing our faith. The more we do it, the fear goes down, but the pure awesomeness of it never does. Never does. It stays as exciting the 50th time as it does the first time. It never diminishes. And so we are told to make a defense with gentleness and respect. So sharing your faith is awesome. The satisfaction stays high. There is satisfaction in obedience. Paul's goal was to hear these words, Well done, my good and faithful servant. And there is uh, a promise for us, but I need to get this one first. What's the result of, of doing what Peter says? The result is a good conscience. It says, having a good conscience, in verse 16, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. We have Peter's first example that we went over, then we see his instruction. Uh, do you see, when you look at his actions in the first one, your bulletin notes, his actions in the first example, and then his instruction in 1 Peter? Did he do anything right in his first Here's first go through according to his own instructions. Did he get anything right? You, you go through that and you say, well, the, here's an, his instruction. How did he do? Failure. Here's the next instruction. How did he do? Failure. Peter has a second encounter, a second example. And this example is from the day of Pentecost. You can read about it in Acts chapter 2. Uh, the Pentecost is the time when the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples of Christ while they were at the temple. The apostles and other followers of Christ received the promised spirit after Christ ascended into heaven. They began to witness in the temple, and their witness created quite a stir. Jews from all over the world heard the apostles preaching, and they heard it in their own native tongue. Most of the listeners were amazed. Some mocked. The mockers said, these guys must be drunk. At that point, Peter turned his attention to them and began to proclaim Christ. Here are the highlights. I encourage you to read through Acts chapter 2. But here are the highlights of his sermon. Over a month earlier, he was afraid to identify with Jesus before a servant girl. Now Peter is addressing people from all over the world in the temple, which is, by the way, where the Sanhedrin gathers, the group that killed Jesus. But he goes and he speaks in front of thousands to the very group that brought Jesus to Pilate to be crucified. Peter is unafraid. Peter is prepared to make a defense for the hope that has become evident to all in the temple. In his sermon in Acts 2.36, Peter honors Christ as Lord. Look at this. It says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, talking about Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So Peter honors Jesus as Lord, Christ as Lord. Later, uh, not this occasion, but in a, in a few, few days later, uh, Peter and John were arrested, beaten, and warned about further testimony involving Jesus. How does Peter respond to that? Well, in Acts 5.41, it says, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. So we have Peter's first example, 
And the only thing we can say is that was a colossal failure. And then we see in further opportunities, Peter stands before thousands unafraid, and he, he gives a reason for the hope that is in him. He makes a defense for Christ. He honors Christ as Lord. And then once beaten, the thing that he was probably afraid about to begin with, he now rejoices that he was counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. What changed? What changed that Peter would go from complete failure to honoring Christ as Lord? What changed? Well, I think there was a, a couple of things that changed, but, but one of them is that the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that indwells all believers, came upon him. The Spirit of power. Jesus said, after this, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, a helper will come upon you, and you shall receive power. And Peter received that Holy Spirit, and everything changed in him as far as his testimony from Christ from the time before the crucifixion to after the ascension, and the Holy Spirit came. We have that same Holy Spirit. We have the same Holy Spirit. Sometimes people mistakenly will pray for more of the Holy Spirit. We have the whole Holy Spirit. We are not missing any of the Holy Spirit. It is not that we don't have enough of the Spirit. What's the issue? The Spirit doesn't have enough of us. But we have that same Holy Spirit. And we have Everything can change through the power of God's Spirit. So we can boldly proclaim Jesus Christ when we are experiencing suffering and we have joy and we have peace and we have that certain hope of our resurrection and that certain hope of eternal life with Jesus Christ. And people say, how are you able to, to, to have... I, I don't get it. What's going on? We had that with my mom's funeral. People came, our unsaved family came, and they said, we've never been to a funeral like this. How can you all be so happy? And we got to say, because I get to see my mom again. She's with Jesus Christ. She's not disappointed one bit. I'm disappointed that I don't get to spend more time with my mom. I'm disappointed. But she is not disappointed at all. Jesus died for her, paid for her sins, and he paid for mine. And so I know I'll see her again. That is being prepared to give a defense for the living hope that is within us. That is how we are supposed to handle suffering. Not being afraid, but saying, I'm going to get an opportunity to do something that matters for eternity. That is what changed. That is what changed. Aren't you glad, believer, that you have the Holy Spirit residing within you? Aren't you glad, saved brother and sister in Christ, that Jesus loved you enough to come and die and pay for the penalty of sin so that you could be forgiven for all eternity? Aren't you glad, believer, that you have the opportunity, the privilege, of speaking the truth of the gospel to a world that desperately needs the good news of Jesus Christ? That is how we handle suffering in a way that honors Christ.
And like Peter and John and the other apostles left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name, God doesn't need my testimony. He doesn't need my witness. God doesn't wring his hands in heaven and he says, oh, Chris Berg ain't doing what he's supposed to do. How is this person going to get saved if he doesn't speak up? God's got it. God's got it. But boy, to have the opportunity to share Jesus Christ, I'm telling you, it'll put a smile on your face and it'll be hard to wipe it off. What an opportunity we have to witness for Christ in our suffering. Heavenly Father, we just thank you that we do have a hope. And it's not a foolish hope, it's not an ignorant hope, but instead it's a certain hope that makes sense because your son rose from the grave, that his sacrifice for sin was found to be sufficient by you, that you said, yeah, this does it, this pays for sin. And because of his resurrection, we have the hope of our own resurrection, not wishful fingers crossed, maybe it'll happen, but a rest assured certain hope. Father, we thank you for the suffering so that it provides a backdrop for the hope that is within us. And our hope isn't in our own ability, our own goodness, our own righteousness, but our hope is in the righteousness of Jesus Christ who loved us enough to die for us. And it's his name we pray. Amen.